It is uh, so good to see all of you, at least in my mind's eye, out there. Um, we've got people that have joined us as far away as Colorado. I know that because my parents are there. Uh, just a quick word of thanks. I've been expressing thanks all week long to those that have put our media presence together. And I want to give a, a big thank you to Mark Rich and Alan Hart and Kenneth Galbraith, uh, who've just been up here Thursday, Friday, Saturday, again today, and getting a lot of help from Jeff Thiessen as well. Just thank you guys for bringing this together. Um, I was told in the first service that it looked like it was a full house. Just in case we have any police that are out there, it is not. Uh, just so you know, we actually have about six people that are seated out here right now. And uh, some of them heard part of the first service. But Marty is the lucky person who heard, who heard none of the first service. So, Marty, I'll be looking at you a whole lot during, <laughs> during this message. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, at any rate, uh, today we're going to be talking about something that's uh, very, I think, relevant to us. I was told years ago when I preached on this particular su subject that someone told me, uh, you know, that felt like just a piece of God flowing all over me. And I thought, I have never had a compliment that great in my life. And then they said, yeah, it was just like the peace of God. It surpassed all my understanding. I didn't understand a word you said. And so I'm going to try to be really, really clear this morning on the peace of God that surpasses all of our understanding. Because we do need to understand this. We do need to apprehend this. Because I know if you're like me, if you're like the people I've talked to, if you're like my family, if you're like everybody else apparently in this nation, what you want as much as anything is peace. Things have been sort of disturbing. Our physical peace, our financial peace is being threatened. And a lot of the conversation this last week is at what point do we have to choose between one or the other because we're having to choose between one or the other. At what point do we choose financial peace over physical peace? But you can't really have both at the same time. And that is robbing people of psychological peace, and this is happening at a time when, unfortunately, we're social distancing, so we can't shake hands, we can't hug one another's necks. It's uh, been kind of kind of odd uh, around here and around my household. My, my wife and I, we it's a little nervous even between the two of us, but at least I've been able to tell Shelby, stay away from your boyfriend. Uh, so there is an upside, but there is some psychological peace that's gone missing, and, and I understand that, and as a pastor, I know that we're not going to be having weddings, and I've been told you better anticipate a few more funerals. I hope that's not the case, but that is what we're looking forward to. And so there is fear in the air, and I recognize that. And some of you out there, I know already, you've lost jobs, and I'm really sorry about that. My son had to get tested just a few days ago because he was exposed to some people who had COVID-19. Uh, he did not end up having it, but I know people get nervous about stuff like this. He's still finishing out a quarantine that was ordered by, by the doctor that he needed to sort of undergo just to make sure that he doesn't have it. Fear is in the air. So what we want more than anything else is peace. And the good news is Jesus Christ provides exactly what we want. He gives us what we need. He gives us peace. So this morning, what we're going to do is going to be real simple. We're going to look at really one verse in particular that is a, a Christian exposition on the peace that Christ gives. 
So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand together out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Go ahead. Let's, let's stand. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, but focusing on 27 in particular. And if you're out there, uh, you know, on the World Wide Web, wherever you may be, please stand. I, I know that you're by yourself and it feels a little weird, but this is what we do as a church. We're not going to wait for you to put your pants on. If that's what you're needing to do, just go ahead and stand as we stand together, as we always do, out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is verse 26 of John chapter 14. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said. Now, just real quickly, let me pause here and suggest to you that if you want peace in your life, spend some time in the word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the word and the word is intended by the Holy Spirit to draw attention to Jesus. And as we're going to see in just a minute, the peace in your life comes from knowing Jesus and getting to know Jesus better. So as a church, here's what we're going to be doing over the next 50 days. You may do this independently. You may want to get on a Zoom conference with some people. We'll be establishing some of that through the church. You may just do this informally with people in your Sunday school class or small group uh, class. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through Luke and the book of Acts. The gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, it's 52 chapters in 50 days. Each of the couple of days, we'll read a couple of chapters that are shorter. But we're going to work through the birth of Jesus, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we're also going to work through the birth of the church to the point of it being established uh, in the early days of our Christian history. It's going to be really fun. We're going to do this together as a church, and for some of you, you may want to actually get online through Zoom with your class and just read the Bible out loud. But however you see fit to do it, whether it's with your family or other people in your church family or just by yourself, get into the Word. It will bring you peace like binge-watching something on Netflix is not. So make it a point to do that for your own benefit and for the benefit of an appropriate spiritual discipline. Okay, moving on. Here's our focal text. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, do not give, I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. May God bless the name of his word, you may be seated. In verse 27, we get three truths about peace that Jesus gives us. He says, first of all, I give peace. Secondly, I give peace in a way the world doesn't. The peace I give is different. And then finally, the peace that I give is the antidote to fear. And that is exactly why we need to pay close attention this morning because it's the antidote to fear. And we do not want fear because fear is crippling. Fear will keep you from doing what you know you ought to be doing. It will keep you from pressing forward in life in a way that you know you ought to be pressing forward. Fear will hold you back. I remember being very afraid when I was a younger person. I think I was in the fifth grade or sixth grade. I was living with my family, of course, and we, we would go to the beach on occasion. We were just 70 miles away from the beach at South Padre Island. And on one occasion, we, we went, but on the way from McAllen to South Padre, we stopped and watched the movie Jaws. It might have been Jaws 2. I can't remember. But I just remember finally getting to the beach that afternoon and thinking, you know, I'm not getting in there. As a kid, I would love to go swimming, and we would swim out to the second sandbar. And, and this is back before wave pools. Kids actually got in real waves, and you could ride them up and down, and it was a lot of fun. And we knew that there were sharks there, but it didn't bother us. But I had just seen this movie about a great white shark eating people for pleasure, and I'm not, I'm not getting in. 
And I remember my, my parents kind of making fun of me a little bit or like, hey, why don't you go swimming? Are you scared? It's like, no, 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 I just want to build sandcastles and dig holes. Um, no, of course I was frightened. Here's the point. Fear is crippling. Fear will hold you back. Fear will not enable you to press forward in life in a way that is normal. That's why we don't want fear. It's not just that we want some internal peace or stability of mind. We want to actually be doing what it is that we know we need to be doing day after day, week after week, not for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of other people. Now, just to be clear, just because we have the peace of Christ doesn't mean that we're not going to be sad. As a matter of fact, sadness and the peace of Christ often go together. Because if you have the peace of Christ, you are on occasion going to enter into the suffering and the difficulty and the sorrows of other people. That's what the peace of Christ does. It enables you to go places where you wouldn't otherwise go because you recognize I've got to minister to these people who are having difficulties in this moment. That's why the Apostle Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 says, I'm very sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing. Why? How can that be? Because the Bible expects that Christians are going to be sad. In fact, sometimes it's entirely appropriate to be sad. It'd be wrong not to be sad or sorrowful because there's real loss. There's real pain and suffering in this world. Just because you have the peace of Christ doesn't mean on occasion you're not going to be sad. There may be some loss that's coming for some of us. Financially, physically, that may happen and we will be sad. That doesn't mean the peace of Christ is not involved. Over in uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, the scripture talks about the Messiah being a man, a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's Jesus. It doesn't say that he was a man of fear acquainted with terror, but he is a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. And yet there's incredible peace that the Holy Spirit brings. There's incredible peace that Jesus brings. But that doesn't mean we're not always, that, that we're always not going to be sad. No, no, there are going to be occasions when we're sad. The point that I'm trying to make here is this. When the peace of Christ comes in your life, it's not like you're receiving Xanax or some tranquilizer that sedates your feelings. What happens with the peace of Christ is it absolutely busts apart your fear so that you will go places that other people will not go and you'll do things that other people would not do because fearlessly, without panic, you will enter into the suffering and the need of other people around you. It, it, it's that when the peace of Christ comes into your life, here's what happens. It's not just that you have the ability to, you know, go swim with sharks, like some, you know, I don't know, spring breaker who's just looking for thrill-seeking moments. Here's what will happen. You will actually follow Jesus where Jesus uniquely goes, like into places like, I don't know, hospitals or ministering to people with courage in the midst of a pandemic. I'm not saying to be, to be foolish Wash your hands. Keep your social distance. Absolutely, of course. But let me give you some historical context on this with regards to the fearlessness of the body of Christ because of the peace that Jesus uniquely gives. Let me take you back to A.D. 249 to 262 just to show you the fear-busting power of this peace. During that time, Western civilization was hit by an epidemic. We don't know exactly the nature of it, where it came from, but we know that at the peak of this particular plague, thousands of people were dying every day. In Rome alone, in the city of Rome, at the peak of the outbreak, 5,000 people died every single day. It was devastating, and it lasted for a, over a decade. Bishop Dionysius, who was the bishop 
at Alexandria made notes of his observations concerning how Christians and non-Christians dealt with this particular plague, with this outbreak. And one of the things that he said that I thought was kind of interesting is that he did not notice any difference in terms of the, the plague showing favoritism to Christians over non-Christians or vice versa. It hit everybody. But the experience of the believers was different because the believers responded to the plague differently than the unbelievers. Here's what uh, Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, wrote about the non-Christian experience. He said, at the first onset of the disease, they, that is the unbelievers of the pagans, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Non-Christian accounts confirm the same sentiments and observations. For example, a century later, Emperor Julian gave a, a command to his pagan priests to, to up their game with regards to caregiving to the people around them. And he said, we've got to do this basically to curb the growth of Christianity because he said Christianity is growing, and I'm quoting here, because of the benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives. Elsewhere, he said, for it is a disgrace that these impious Galileans, that is how we talk about Christians, it's a disgrace that these Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Now, although Julian questioned the motives of the Christians, the fact that he was very disappointed in the performance of the pagan priests and their charities or lack thereof demonstrates that when it came to setting the bar or setting the standard for service to the poor and to the sick, it was the Christians who set the bar, and, and it was the Christians who set a bar so high that the pagan charities couldn't even begin to match it. In fact, uh, later on in, a, in another article, well, this is Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark, he's a historian. He wrote, he wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity, and he said when Emperor Julian gave these commands to the pagans, these pagan priests and, and the people that they led, they could not match the, the Christian charities because they didn't have a theological basis for doing so and because these pagan charities or lack thereof, these pagan priests, they didn't have any uh, practices or traditions upon which to build. The Christians were just unique and set apart in their devotion to the poor and to the sick and to the risk that was involved with regards to ministering to other people. Um, talking about the Christians, if the, if the non-believers were characterized by self-protection, and self-preservation and the avoidance of those in need, this is how the Christians responded. Um, again, getting back to Dionysius of Alexandria, Dionysius explained that actually for many Christians, the opportunity arose for them to grow in their faith, that actually the, the plague was an opportunity for them to be schooled and, and to experience spiritual growth and training. And he said, the best of us, actually, we're, we're the ones who, who are so involved in the lives of the sick that they would become sick themselves, that they would catch the disease and then they would die and then these Christians would actually die in joy. Here's what he wrote. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Here's the point. There is real power in the peace that Christ gives. And the power of the peace that Christ gives is seen most clearly 
in the sacrificial involvement in the lives of others where the love of God is clearly on display and loving action is on the move. We're not talking about just entering into a state of mind that will enable us to, to somehow overcome the next seven weeks. What we're talking about is an objective peace that Jesus Christ actually gives to us that enables us to be fearless. And that is why the church grew. It's not just that the church was compassionate to people. It's that people saw in the lives of Christians a lack of panic, a, a real courage. I, I had mentioned to somebody the other day that, you know, okay, so Christians on the whole, you know, they don't drink, they don't chew, they don't run with the girls that do. We don't cuss that much. And, and other people go, yay, you know, who cares? You know what impresses people? It's not what we don't do. You know what is really impressive or magnetic? Fearlessness. And what that means is, on the other hand, one of the worst testimonies we could possibly give to people is panic. Jesus Christ was sorrowful, acquainted with grief, but he was never afraid. He was courageous, not foolish, but courageous. The best testimony that we can give to people is not just our activities in terms of advancing the gospel and participating to others with others and serving them. It's doing it fearlessly. It's doing all of this without panic. So as we're talking about the peace of Christ that we receive that enables us to do extraordinary things, we're not just talking about being sedated. No, we're talking about advancing the gospel. I've been trying to communicate this to people like even though we can't get together and this is the first time in 98 years here in this space, we've not been able to meet together as a church. That kind of stinks. But that doesn't mean that the church isn't still advancing, that Jesus hasn't still called us to do something extraordinary with the people around us and with regards to our families, with regards to our neighbors. The church is still advancing. You know why? Because we have the peace of Christ. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had been afraid of pushback and, and, and some sort of persecution, which he was persecuted, and he got lots of pushback. But imagine if the Apostle Paul was afraid and then he decides to stay at home, not taking the gospel into most of the known world of his day. Imagine Martin Luther King Jr. preaching, you know, some very simple sermons where on occasion he might hint at the dangers of segregation all because he was afraid of a little pushback. Could you imagine Nelson Mandela seeing and experiencing apartheid and then just, you know, burying his head in the sand or looking the other way simply because he didn't want the fuss. Now, can you imagine, because I can't imagine this, but I don't want to, but can you imagine you knowing what it is that God would have you to do and not doing it because you were panicked or afraid? Can you imagine turning your back on our core identity, which is people matter, kingdom growth and service, simply because of a phobia? Could you imagine turning your back on your identity as a member of a family of priests revealing Christ? Can you imagine turning your back on the reality that God has put in your life, and that is that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, an intersection between heaven and earth for people? And, and you withdraw from not just your calling, but from who you are simply because you're afraid? No. So as we're talking about the peace of Christ, we're talking about something that is incredibly relevant in a way that maybe, at first, we don't always necessarily understand. So this morning, we're going to get into it. Here we go. Here's how Jesus puts it. Three points, but we're kind of going to work backwards. But here's how Jesus says. He says, I give you peace. I'm giving you peace unlike the world gives. And 
This piece is the antidote for fear. Now, we're going to work with this a little bit backwards, okay? We're going to start with the outside of the onion and move to the core. The peace that Jesus Christ gives is the antidote to fear. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And he says this right after he says, here's the peace that I give you that the world does not give. Jesus absolutely ties fearlessness to the peace that he gives. Now, where does fear come from? Let's, let's get into this. Where does fear come from? Well, we, we know if we go back to the origin story of sin and fear in Genesis chapter 3, we see that fear comes from sin. The first result of what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden is they are afraid. What is sin? If you go back to the origin story, again, in Genesis chapter 3, here's what you see. Sin is essentially saying to God, I don't need you. Adam and Eve, you go back, Adam and Eve, they're, they're in the garden, and they walk with God in the cool of the day, and their heart's impulse is, if God is for us, who would stand against us? So whenever God would draw near, they would draw near to God. They walk with him in the cool of the garden because there's this recognition. If this God who is greater than all is our friend and our support, we don't need to fear anything. But then they make a decision at the center of the garden upon which their happiness and their joy and their confidence hinges. You know the story. They make this decision to, in essence, say, God, we don't need you. They bought this lie, this lie that God was somehow holding out on them. They bought into that lie and they recognized, or they believed this lie, that God ought to be feared above all others, that God was holding out on them, that God was the source of oppression, that, that if they would just turn their back on God, then they would know life. And so they say to God what we sometimes say to God, which is, I don't need you, or worse than that, you're basically irrelevant to me, or worse than that, you're in my way. They make this decision at the center of the garden, and you know what happens next? They're afraid. It says they're naked and ashamed, which meant they felt exposed, vulnerable, defenseless. God comes looking for Adam, and he says, Adam, why did you hide from me? And Adam says, well, I heard you coming, but I didn't run to you. I didn't draw near to you when you drew near to me. I hid in the bushes because I was afraid. What, the, what Genesis chapter 3 is giving us is a profound, profound analysis of the human condition. We believe this lie that if we'll just distance ourselves from God, we'll enter into a, a place of freedom, a place of joy, a, a place where we don't have to be afraid. The serpent, the serpent says, you should be more afraid of God than me or of any of the, any of the other animals. And this is a pretty common lie that you'll see on the web all the time. Religion is the opiate of the people. You may not feel afraid at this moment, but you ought to be afraid because religion and God is oppressive and he's holding you down and you've got all these rules and he's got a wrath and he's watching over your shoulder and, and he is monitoring your life and he wants to keep you in your place. And the fear of God begins to grow, but it's not in the positive way. It is, I am afraid of him and people think I'm going to move away from being afraid if I move away from God. And you know what happens with Adam and Eve in the story? They move away from God and they don't distance themselves from fear. They're not done with fear. They discover fear in a way they'd never known it before. They are afraid. That's how it works. Our experience confirms this. Look, if you walk away from God, just think about it like this. You distance yourself from God. What happens is you begin to feel your finitude. You begin to feel your smallest. You begin to feel your isolation in a way that you never had before, and it will crush you. 
This is largely why our ancestors, I'm talking about our great-great-great-great-grandparents in Western civilization, this is why our ancestors just didn't freak out the way contemporary people do when there are national disasters or natural disasters. I mean, our great-great-great-grandparents, when they had children, they, there was this recognition that half of them are going to die before they reach maturity. And yet somehow they moved forward. By all accounts, they took things in stride. Now, in the case of, of modern people here in the 21st century, there's a threat. And because of the, the threat, people will binge watch five seasons of Seinfeld that they've already seen multiple times while eating 10 gallons of ice cream. And that's not a good thing if you've run out of toilet paper. Why are we so freaked out in ways that our ancestors or great-great-grandparents weren't? It's not that hard to, to figure. Here's how your great-great-grandparents felt. If they're a part of Western civilization or general Christianity or, or de dependent, irregardless of the, the uh, denominational affiliation, our ancestors basically believed that there was a supreme, infinite God who was sovereign over this world, and that this world was just a small part of reality. We didn't have to run things because God did. But if you were connected to this infinite God who would outlast the universe, who mattered more than matter itself, then even after death, you'd go to be with God in heaven, and that there was one day going to be a new heaven and a new earth, that if you were in God, this one who mattered more than all matter, because he is all the weight of glory in and of himself, you're going to be okay. You didn't have to run things and you're okay if things didn't go according to plan because God had a plan and this is not all there is. Moderns, on the other hand, and I'm talking specifically about naturalistic materialists. Naturalistic materialists, most secularists, they have two things that they, two filters through which they look at the world. This material universe is essentially all there is all that matters. It's all I ever think about. And we're the ones kind of running the show. So when things don't go according to plan, people are going to freak out. How in the world could somebody possibly think we're running things and this is all there is and then everything goes to hell in a handbasket? How in the world could they ever respond to reality the same way our great-great-grandparents did? They don't have the resources. It's not possible. Don't you see, when you, when you have said to God, as Adam and Eve did, God, I don't need you. When you've said to God, I don't need you, you don't matter, you're in my way, you feel small, and you feel powerless, and you feel helpless, like you're in a space that is just way too big for you. Which, by the way, if you do say to God, God, I don't need you, God, you're irrelevant to me. Just because you say it doesn't mean it's true, and just because you say it doesn't actually mean that you believe it. There are no atheists in foxholes. Some people say, well, I don't know that that's true. But there is this impulse within every heart in times of difficulty to cry out to the God who is there, or in some cases, to even cry out to the God that people don't think is there. Because we know we need God. It's kind of like this. You, you might imagine a daughter with her dad going to Lakeline Mall. I know it's closed. But he's there with his daughter, and they're in the mall, and she's just six years old, and this is her first experience, and she thinks this is fantastic. And, and she says, Dad, I'm, I'm okay now. I don't, you, don't, you can let go of my hand. And the dad says, well, no, honey, you don't understand. You've never been here before. This place is too big for you. 
and I'm not letting go. If, if you go off somewhere, you might not find me again, and it's not safe. And the, the girl just says, okay, whatever. And you know, in her mind, she's thinking, the first chance I get, I'm running off. Well, sure enough, the dad lets go because he has to get a package off of the top shelf or something like this. And then the daughter is off to the races, and she thinks, oh, yeah, I saw that yogurt shop back over there, and I've got five bucks in my pocket, and I'm going to get sprinkles, and it's going to be fantastic. And she runs over to the yogurt shop, only the yogurt shop isn't where she thought it was. And all of a sudden, the 15-foot ceiling seems like 50 feet, and the place is getting bigger, and she's getting afraid. And then she runs to another place, and she can't find what it is she's looking for. And she thinks, maybe I should ask somebody else where the yogurt place is. But then she realizes, if I ask them, then they're going to know that I'm alone and and, and then she wants to cry, but she recognizes I can't cry because then somebody else is going to think that, that I'm vulnerable, which I am vulnerable. I am, I am exposed, and I am vulnerable, and I am defenseless, and I can't let people know this, and she starts freaking out. You ever been there as a kid? When I was a child, I got separated from my mom one time, and it was when we were in Woolworths. This is back in the days when you had these, you know, circular clothes stands. They got rid of cir circular clothes stands. You know why? Because Marty was always hiding in the clothes from mom. Okay. That's how it works. And so I remember doing that. I was hiding from my, from my mom and we, I couldn't find her because I hid too long and she couldn't find me and you couldn't see around those. And I just kind of freaked out. That's what God says it's like. You say to God, I don't need you. Then you go off your own for a while and then you feel small and isolated and powerless and helpless you're lost, and that is not a good place to be, especially if the way the map of your life works is with God in the center. You take away the center of the map, you've taken away the map because nothing makes sense anymore. That's Adam and Eve. That's us. When you distance yourself from God, you don't, you don't move away from fear. You move into it. So what's the solution for this girl that's run off from her dad? It's real simple. She needs to change her mind and run back. She's gripped by fear, and there's a fear of admitting that she's afraid, but the only way to get out of her predicament is to call out to her dad and return to her dad. The Bible says this is repentance. Now, the question is, is it safe to repent? Well, of course it's safe to repent. Will the Father always take you back? Yes, he'll take you back. How do you know that the Father will take you back? Here's how you know. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the evidence that you can always repent, you can always change your mind, you can always come back, the Father will always take you. So in the time that remains, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just simply ask the question and answer it, how then do I receive this peace of Christ? We're going to get real practical. Okay, three things here. And we know that Jesus wants us to have peace. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. He wants us to have his peace. How do we get it? Three things. The first thing you've got to recognize is that the peace of Christ is not something you can manufacture. It's something that you can simply receive. He gives it. You've got to receive it. It's different than the peace the world gives. Jesus says, I give, but I don't give peace the way the world gives peace. It's different. Now, that's not to say that the, the world doesn't supply some peace and that there are, aren't some strategies that are helpful. But when you go to the world, the world's going to tell you one of two things with regards to, to achieving peace. One thing the world's going to tell you is ignore, ignore, ignore. Just forget about it. Bury your head in the sand. Bury your life in a bottle. Bury yourself in your work in your backyard. Bury yourself in exercise or whatever the case is. Just kind of forget about all of that. Binge watch something for a while. Just try to put it out of your head. And that may be a, a strategy that helps for a short period of time 
to help you survive, but you can't really live there. It's not a long-term ultimate strategy. And the other strategy that the world gives you for achieving peace is basically change your circumstance. Win the lottery. Move out to the country where it's safe. Check out or change. Sometimes there's some wisdom in that for a season. And if you don't have a job, you want to look for a job. If you need to exercise, that's a good idea. Before you get sick, it's better to be healthy before you get sick rather than be unhealthy before you get sick. That's a good thing. And maybe it's okay for a time to check out. You don't have to be on Twitter 24-7. That's probably not healthy for you. But those are not ultimate strategies for peace. And let me tell you why. Death pays no attention to the fools who check out, and death pays no attention to the size of the bank account of the person who's won the lottery. We need an ultimate solution that the world cannot provide, and that's what Jesus does. He gives us peace unlike the world gives it. So how do we receive this peace? Let's press forward like this. You've got to recognize the context where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. When Jesus says that to his disciples, he's talking about death. And Jesus dies the next day. When Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about his last will and testament. That's what he's doing. He's giving the disciples his will. And he is tying this moment to his death. Now, Everybody here recognizes that if you're going to receive what is left to you in a will, you don't get what it is that has been willed to you until the, until the testator, the person who wrote the will, actually passes away. You will never understand Christian peace until you understand that Jesus ties his peace that he gives specifically to his death for you and for me. And what that means is for a Christian... The unique peace that Jesus Christ gives is not just a subjective state of mind. It is an objective, accomplished reality. That is to say, Jesus, in dying for you and dying for me, he lived the life we should live, died the death we should have died. When Jesus died on the cross for us, he gave us in history, in reality, forgiveness for our sins. He paid, he paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sins. He fulfilled the expectations or the requirements of the Father for a relationship with God. This is an objective reality that we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has in history, objectively, out there in reality, done for you and me. Now, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything just snaps into place in our heads. There is something that we need to appropriate. That is to say, there's an objective reality that we need to make a subjective reality for ourselves. Uh, that is to say, you can be rich, but still live as if you're poor because you don't know you're rich. You could actually be the heir to an estate, but you don't know that you're the heir. You haven't received what it is that was given to you. We want to receive what Jesus Christ did for us, but the peace of God rests in the reality that Jesus actually, in history, opened up the kingdom of God to us, that we have come into a new territory in our lives. He's given us the keys to the castle. He's given us a clear title to adoption as his sons. And if you've been adopted into the family of God, you need to receive that and live as if it's true because it's true. So the question is, how do I actually live as if this is true? How, 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 do, I, how do I work the peace of God into my life? Well, you've just 
We've just kind of answered the question by asking it. You take the peace of Christ and you work it into your life. You remind yourself of this reality. You look to the cross of Jesus Christ as the ultimate evidence of his love and his faithfulness to you. And you work this into your life as if this is true because it's true. It's very much what the Apostle Paul is doing over in Romans chapter 8. We'll start with verse 31, just several verses I'm going to read through very quickly. The Apostle Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he moves on and says, it is God who justifies. God made me acceptable. He's already accomplished all of this. This is Paul. And as he's writing, he's almost shouting it out, but he's not just shouting it out. He's shouting it in. He's screwing it down into his heart because it's true. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or COVID-19? It's there in the Greek. Look it up. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What Paul is doing is he's taking the truth of Jesus Christ and he's just pressing it and pressing it and pressing it since this is true about Jesus, since this is who he is and it's what he's done. Well, I need to be living as if this is true. And since this is all true, why should I fear anything? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for me and that will never, ever change regardless of the circumstances or situation. Now, sometimes our hearts lie to us. Sometimes the world lies to us. Sometimes, you know, death lies to us. And you might want to say to death, death, you know, do your worst because you don't know what lies on the other side. You can talk things out. But until you come to a point in your life where you're looking at Jesus, not just as a wise teacher or a good moral example, until you come to a point in your life where you see that Jesus Christ is your king who died for you, that you would never be separated from him. Until you come to that point, you're going to live in fear. But you need not live in fear Because Jesus has provided a way where we can come back to the Father. God says, you need me. We said for a season, I don't need you. And then we recognize, well, actually I do. And when you say I do to God, you say I do to God over Jesus Christ's broken body and shed blood. And he takes you into the family and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I kind of get it. I understand that. I see this is true but I'm still fearful. I'm still not experiencing this, pe- this peace in my life. How do I experience this peace? How do I grow in the experience of this peace? Well, we go back to verse 26. He talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Again, the question is, how do I receive this peace of Christ? How do I appropriate it? Well, you recognize you've got to receive it. The world, you, the, the world can't give it to you. You can't manufacture it. It's a piece you have to receive. You focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and you just press and you press and you press that down into your life so that your life matches up the reality of what's been done for you. And then you depend on the Holy Spirit to awaken the teachings of Christ and the reality of Christ in your life. Some of us, we just need to simply sit down and say, Holy Spirit, make this real to me. God's on your side. It could be just as simple as you opening up the word, which the, which the scriptures are inspired by, given to us by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You open up the scriptures that point to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, in cooperation with what he's written already, is just pointing you to Jesus and pointing you to Jesus and making it real because you're listening. In the moment when you open up the scripture and you meditate on the scripture and you ask for the Holy Spirit's help, do you know what you're saying in that moment? You're essentially saying to God, I need you. Some of us, unfortunately, we, have, we, we get into these routines or these habits where we just pray to God, you know, little, we shoot out little requests here and there. Oh, God, help me find a parking spot or, or God, you know, help me get to sleep or whatever. 
And we're making requests and requests and requests, but we're not taking the time to sit down with the Scripture and with the Holy Spirit and say, reveal yourself to me because I need you. We treat God like a butler. And let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit doesn't show up in power if we essentially, in our behaviors or attitudes or dispositions, communicate to him, well, I don't really need you. You're irrelevant to my life. I've got better things to do. I need to get on Twitter and see what the latest tweet is concerning COVID-19. I need to watch the news. I need to hang out over here. I need to go do this. And, da, 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 and we don't even give God the time of day. You know why we're afraid? Because we've said to God, I don't need you. You're irrelevant. You're in my way. And we expect God to show up in power in our lives when, when we're doing all the talking. And that's our prayer life. Our prayer ought to be along the lines of listening first. At least listening the majority of the conversation. If you sit down with, it, it, let's just say physically, you know, the Shekinah glory of God comes from the ceiling of your house right now and just sits right down in the middle of your living room. And you know it's God. If you do 95% of the talking or 100% of the talking, that's kind of crazy. This is God that you're dealing with. You want his peace. You communicate in your disciplines and in the way in which you pray. God, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. You're not irrelevant to my life. You are not in my way. Some of us, we just need to set aside that time. For some of us, the reason we're not experiencing peace is we have said to God in our actions and our attitudes and dispositions and our disobedience, I'm just going to do life my own way. And I know your word says this, but I'm going to do this and I'm not going to follow your leadership. We've essentially said to God, you're in my way. You're not relevant. I'll deal with you when you're on the same wavelength as me, but not vice versa. You're not going to have peace like that. You won't ever have peace if that's the attitude or disposition of your life. And some of us, I'm, I'm afraid, we might think, I'm just not good enough, or you're kind of feeling guilty and all the rest. And you know what you've said to God? You've said to God, because of your own particular guilt, I don't need your charity. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need your grace. And you've said to God, I don't need you. If on any level, in any way, you were saying to God what Adam and Eve said to God, I don't need you. You're not relevant to me. You're kind of in my way. You will never know peace. And so here's, here's the takeaway, okay? If you're just wanting one thing to, like, what can I remember about this? Here it is. You want peace, find ways where you can communicate to God. I need you. Because you do. And when you say that to God and you repent of your independence and you come and depend on the Holy Spirit and you acknowledge your need for Christ and you, and you just repent of where you have been and you run to the Father and you just say, God, I need you. You'll have peace and you will grow in the experience of it. But if you're not knowing peace now, if you're not experiencing peace now, that's not on God. He sent the Son. He did everything He possibly could. So be at peace. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You've got an option. You can turn to God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you and we, we need you. 
We, we need you. Our families need you. This nation needs you. Our leaders need you. We need you. And, and we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray, Lord, for the, the church in Georgetown, the, the body of Christ in Texas, in this nation, and around this world. Lord, we pray that you would revive us, that you would grant to us the gift of repentance, that we would turn to you and know peace. And as we know peace, grow in our effectiveness, that we would not have a reputation of being weak, that we would gain the reputation of being courageous. Lord, we know that, that panic is not a good reflection on you. Our fears are not a good reflection on you. Forgive us where we have fallen short. May we abide in your peace. And may we be, as the church, people of power. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. It's been great seeing you out there, wherever you may be. Please be mindful of the, the emails and the communications that are coming in your direction. And if you, if you do not have uh, a, a small group or a Sunday school of which you can be a part, please send us your email. Make a request. Whatever it is that you want to communicate with us, send it to office at msbchurch.com. We will receive your requests or your needs, and we will process from that, from that one email as a hub of information and discussion for the staff. We do want to meet your needs. We do want to help you to not feel disconnected. We want to help you to grow. We want you to, we want you to be effective for Jesus in your, in your neighborhood and alongside other people in this church body. So if you have any requests, if you have any needs, please make them known to that email address in particular, office at msbchurch.com. Com. God bless you. We will stay in touch. Have a great afternoon and evening.